0: Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for interviews with the finalists and winners of our annual prizes. My guest for this episode is Sonnet Labbe. Sonnet's book of poetry, Sonnet Shakespeare, is a finalist for the Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. Sonnet's Shakespeare is Sonnet's third book of poetry. Sonnet is the author of two previous collections of poetry, A Strange Relief and Kalarno, and most recently, the chapbook Anima Canadensis. In 2014, she was the guest editor of Best Canadian Poetry. Her work has been published internationally and anthologized. Sonnet lives on Vancouver Island and is a professor of creative writing at Vancouver Island University. Sonnet Shakespeare, which you'll hear more about shortly, has been described as a beautifully choreographed dance through a city's secrets and both an incredibly funny and dazzlingly inventive book. In my conversation with Sonnet, we discuss identity, colonialism, and of course, Shakespeare. Sonnet starts this episode with a reading from her book. So I am going to
1: read uh, poem thirteen from Sonnets Shakespeare. There are one hundred and fifty four poems in this book because there were one hundred and fifty four sonnets that Shakespeare wrote. I'm using that as a source text and uh, like a tool that was used in colonial education, British colonial education, and what I'm doing is writing over them. So. You probably won't be able to hear it uh, because I'm not gonna read Shakespeare's Sonnet 13 out for you, but all of Shakespeare's Sonnet 13's text is here in its entirety in in the text of what you're reading. And I've just inserted my letters all around um, so that the voice of Shakespeare is kind of muted or overspoken. Yeah, so that's, that's basically what this book does. So this is poem 13. The crocheted Afghans' mint green, white, and yellow squares were yarny buttons activating superpowers. I wore it like a fabulous cape or draped it carefully over leggy tables to build a fort. My green and lemon yellow infinity gear had 20,000 superpowers more than your enemy could ever teach herself to check. In each square lived magic at my fingertips. Touch the first corner, become invisible. Ding the second, you shower your befuddled opponent with freezing sparkles. A candy flavored gas I called sweet sleep numbed villains. An alchemist's button turned most other metals gold. There was one to give me x-ray vision. A blanket that shot bullets, death rays, or stun beams out of yarn worsted mechanisms, chastened many a scoundrel holding commonplace lasers. Friends were issued an older crocheted throw, camel beige, little differentiation between the nitty nodules of power blanketry. You could heal yourself again after yourself's decease with resurrection force. You could spend hours under water breathing effortlessly, Your memory could store answers to a billion tests. With form-shifting power, I could become a robotess who obliterates sofa cushions, or my telepathic power use to transfer suggestions of a McDonald's lunch into dad's head. The chums I played with were sometimes real children. But chums were banned from my super friendship early on. A neighbor's mom got frightened when Super Zack love controlled me against the storm door. My Afghan's push buttons confiscated when Super Kevin got turned into a rat, his dad called me a gypsy. Action figured boys ward outside, me in their brigades, sonnet of death, sonnet of supernatural weather control, badass sonnet of dazzling ebullience. But uneasy mothers wielded a force a shield of fear that enveloped domesticity it repelled loves from you know misogyny no button had my afghan to fight against mother control no power called let
0: your sons play house with sonnet thank you I guess the place I wanted to start, and it's probably maybe an obvious place, but was by asking you about your relationship with Shakespeare, because obviously uh, your name is also the poems you engaged with. So could you talk a little bit about what, what it was like to be sonnet with this kind of Shakespeare character around you growing up?
1: Well, my name is a portmanteau right it is a uh, it's like brangelina my mom's name is janet and my dad's name is jason so you take s-o-n from jason and n-e-t from janet and you get sonnet so that wordplay was explained to me very young so it's the idea of being the combination of two people and and that and the, the the word itself like they they experimented with with language, and they saw that it made a word that they liked, and then the word had a nice meaning. So my dad had a little copy, a paperback copy of Shakespeare's sonnets that I think was his brother's from high school that was not well read, but it was the only thing that had my name on it when other kids like, you know, Kimberly and Jennifer had like toothbrushes and dolls and everything that had stuff on it that was theirs. There was no sonnet stuff except that Plus, I was a precocious reader, I guess, like a lot of writers probably uh, were. And so I read those poems. I first read those poems when I was seven years old. I would take them to school with me and try to understand them. In high school, I also tried to, like, write computer programs that would generate them and stuff. So they were, yeah, they were just, they were always around. And I felt like my awareness of Shakespeare was uh, therefore heightened compared to any of the other kids around me.
0: What were your kind of like first impressions of him in those sonnets as you started engaging with them? Well, it's, I mean, I
1: have the, I have very visceral memories of like taking it out at school to try and figure them out. And I, I, I don't remember entirely getting more than like a sentence at a time. I, what I remember most is that my teachers were like, what are you doing? But later I really, uh, I guess in teenage angsthood, that's never left me. Um, the the one when in disgrace, with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state. Like I just I dug that shit. I was so there for that. Yeah, yeah. So and then you know by the time by the time we get to like high school, where we're actually learning the plays, I I just thought, you know, the
0: guy's way with words was pretty pretty good. Yeah i wondered if you could talk a little bit about and you talked about this in the the introduction to your reading but just um how you kind of constructed these poems because it's so interesting in reading them because the language really butts up against each other because there's words that are obviously shakespearean and then there's plenty of fish thrown in there at the same time so if you could talk a little bit about the construction of them
1: what what I did is come up with a different kind of erasure poem for any of, any of the listeners who are familiar with like blackout poetry or erasure poetry. But instead of erasing the text by actually deleting the physical text and leaving space, I am crowding the space of the original text and, and like shoving letters in between the letters of even individual words. So I could stick, for example, an M-O on the front of like if the first word was the, M-O on the front and R on the end would make the first word mother. Or I could break it up and stick an R in the middle and an E on the end and start with three. So you can't hear it necessarily if I'm just reading it out loud, but the the letters are all there. And uh, yeah, I was just thinking about the resonances and politics of erasure culturally and thinking about how I wanted to use language to express what I got to say. And that's what I came up with.
0: I'm curious how the idea started. Were you working on these poems like early on and then got the idea for a whole collection or how did that process start? Um, I, was study. I was at school at the time, so I was
1: studying a lot of poetry, but there was also, con- there were conversations around me. There was uh, an American poet that had taken the autopsy of Michael Brown um, and read it as their own, uh, as like this move of kind of avant-garde poetry that was about taking, about source text and taking it and like, um, yeah, some kind of theorization of authorship, I guess, was supposed to be happening there. So thinking about how an author approaches um, a source text was was on my mind, and yeah, so coming up with what I wanted to do i it really it it got under my skin the way that that this particular poet just felt like like source texts were there to theirs to take and didn't think about the power dynamics, and so um this particular text, because I have such a strong personal relationship with it, but also because it's quote unquote mine, whether I want it to be or not. Like it's a literary and cultural inheritance and and imposition. Um, I, I started with that, with that as the source text, but then there was like, there were months where I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do quote to it or with it or like, and like, what was I using it as? Was I using it? Was I dialoguing with it? So there are times where I broke everything into um, for example, I took all the a 's and put them in a pile like a, like a visual pile, and all the b 's and put them in a pile or right? I' make little blocks with them are some of the um, the first things that that I was doing before i before I landed on this particular process
0: yeah. yeah. I, it's interesting, um, in the beginning of the book, you talk about erasure, and that some of your words were erased, and some of Shakespeare's words were erased, but then you also deal with that thematically, too, as as in whose voices are erased, and who's allowed to speak. I was curious why those themes are so significant for you, and obvious, there's obvious reasons, but I, I would just love to hear more about why you like to engage with erasure, both physically and thematically. I would
1: say that my writing urges and uh, ha- have been about belonging and have been about, yeah, just wanting to feel good or, <laughs> in the world. And at first in my, I would say when I started out, this is like 20, more than 20 years ago, the conversations were quite different and I um, really probably always felt I was addressing a, a white audience. I think I started more from the position of just trying to explain my experience, and took particular issue with who is we, right? And I and I, was, if I was thinking about like the largest sense of we or the highest, noblest form of we that uh, seemed to be organizing things around me when I began my career, um, I was thinking about nation and Canadianness and the whole multicultural narrative and policy that people, I mean, when I was a child, I used to get told I was like the multicultural ideal, like that I embodied multiculturalism because, um, I come from a mixed race marriage. Right. And that I was the future and that like everybody was going to be Brown. Everybody's going to be mixing. And that was not my experience when I tried to, um, be social with young people and be romantic with young people it just didn't work that way so i think my trajectory has been about challenging nation and then as i myself learned more and realized how much um i had not been aware of indigenous knowledge indigenous presence the way that my own education was incomplete then my sense of who we is and what nation is and where we are was more complicated and that's I guess trying this book is trying to think that through like who spoke to me who handed their stories to me who told me what I was who told me what that group of people were etc etc it's about histories and getting to speak
0: I think it was really interesting for me in reading the poems because so often, I think when we're trying to think of power structures and where we are in the world right now, we try and parse things off as like racism, sexism, colonialism, and, and what I found so fascinating about your poems is it kind of got to the heart of the fact that these things are so tangled up in each other that we really need to talk about power as something that brings the mess together. Um, did you feel that as you were engaging with those subjects that you couldn't really tangle them apart? They're so deeply connected.
1: Well, I was searching for the for the the word or words, and I don't know if you remember at the beginning of the book, there's a few different words that I use for the, for what these are for the process. And uh, I still like to leave that loose and undefined, but, but you used the word tangled. And I found as I, once the book was published and I was talking about the grappling, this entanglement and like of experience and of like the way that language tries to detangle and deracinate things is definitely part of what's going on here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting in in reading because I have been reading all the book prizes books and reading your book and also reading um, Chantal Gibson's books, uh, the two kind of sit very nicely together on a bookshelf because I think you both deal so beautifully with um, language and the language we learn and how that shapes identity. And it really felt like identity, and I think you mentioned this already, belonging were, were things you were really grappling with and how because of our power structures, they shape our identity. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and how you, how you worked that into the poems. It seems like an undercurrent in the whole book.
1: I think I've been even just thinking about, it's, it's lifelong, right? But thinking about the word identity because identity politics is something that, that for most of my life was coded as the thing that racialized, that people racialized as non-white um, because I don't even like to think of white people as not racialized. That's like the hyper most racialized, I I think, that that thinking through identity was, was the realm of everyone who didn't have access to a certain kind of power, right? So I think that that, that sense of like trying to figure out what wholeness feels like um, and being offered these boxes like because everybody wants I think everybody wants language to express their their feelings of belonging to and to whom their loyalties sit and it was just always just kind of didn't make sense to me the way that Canadians white Canadians would just be like oh well, you know Canadian like you could do that as 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 recently as a generation like or even like my mom's from here but I'm totally Canadian right uh, my or my grandparents are from here, but I'm totally Canadian and I didn't get that I didn't get that privilege to I was not in, allowed to do that and I still Yeah, now I just feel like I'm trying to Think of this is you can hear in my voice This is how identity feels for me with the with the available options. I stammer and I Makes me want to write another book, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah yeah i think th- i think that's what's so interesting about your book and and the books that are being written right now is i hope it's opening it's opening up that box and addressing the language that we have been given and kind of demanding a new way forward because it seems like the what we have been doing just isn't working and and you know i've i've always struggled with that idea of nationhood i took political science in university and every time people talked about canada as a nation i got all bristly cuz it's such a strange concept to lump all people with one with one term.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess humanism as a philosophy was sort of trying to talk about us as a as a species, but we've had the term human, and I don't know how much good how much that's helped us because uh, it's so it's so broad. Um, people are going to organize themselves into into categories, but like the way that another country, like your country of origin or race informs exclusions or inclusions to to, to, to the Canadian nation is one thing. And then also um, for me, I think the book doesn't go into a lot of, of gender identity stuff. I feel like that those questions, like the way that non-binary has opened up, basically like offered me language that I'm like, oh, oh, beautiful, like, I'll, you know, yes, yes, I will take that, because uh, just racial identity, I think, has been far more troubling, like, I don't have the, I don't have a bunch of, I just feel offered something, like, a gift um, around, like, genderqueer language, but the way that, uh, as a mixed, like, had so many conversations with my mom about how, yeah, about the identities that come down from her, and Guyanese is just another colonial construct. And then to say black or Indian or African Guyanese, Afro Guyanese or Indo Guyanese is fraught, or not well fraught, and just I am at a I am at a moment in in my life where the importance of thinking about those specificities uh, is is much more top of mind but that's still like i mean it doesn't provide a bomb a bomb balm uh necessarily for me to have tiny like tiny little strands of something that don't i don't know that don't tie together i think i feel like that like younger people are just more like oh you've got a whole bunch of strands to braid together and enjoy simultaneously like that i can have that i can access or that i can claim like French Quebecois culture and claim Indo-Caribbean culture and claim Afro-Caribbean culture. Um, but the realities of anti-Blackness and internalized racism and internalized anti-Blackness mean that it's not as, it's not as, uh, as simple as that. Yeah. But hey, I mean, if the, if books, if our books are getting us to talk about it now, then, then I am super happy because these conversations wouldn't have happened 10 years ago.
0: Yeah. And that kind of leads into my my last question for you. And it's I know you teach and you teach uh, literature, and I mean Shakespeare's been on course curriculums for decades. Um, how do you feel about you know the books that that reinforce these certain stories? And and I've had this conversation with lots of authors about you know the books that we teach children and what makes makes it year after year into the classroom how do you feel about Shakespeare still being you know in every classroom every year year after year
1: if it's that ubiquitous if it's like one can't get away from Shakespeare and Shakespeare is taking up space that's that could be given to other other writers and that should be given to uh like global literatures of varying like Historical distance, uh, then, then no. Obviously, that's not cool, right? Do I think Shakespeare should not be taught? No. I mean, I think it it's important to know to know the literature. There's there are reasons. There are reasons that these plays are are fun to read or entertaining. There are reasons that they're historically important, and there are reasons why they're culturally important to the colonial um, culture that we're that we've. That we're living in it's like will it will they be taught with that kind of context i hope so like i hope that that high school teacher training because i didn't i don't think i encountered shakespeare until i was in high school but that high school teacher training would give teachers empower teachers to have that much context and to be setting asking how important is Shakespeare when you're learning on Sinai territory, when you're learning on Treaty 6 territory or, you know, Sailor Tooth territory, like where we can still have those conversations, but it shouldn't be the only thing. And it shouldn't be, uh, I guess, the narrative of best or the narrative of master mastery or like icon- iconography, cultural, like when you think li- like an English literature department, how many English literature department mastheads or like, like their websites have an image of Shakespeare on it to like symbolize literature itself in this language? That, that, we can, that we can shake up a lot, I think.
0: Thanks so much to Sonnet for being on the podcast. And thanks, as always, to you, our listeners, for subscribing and listening to Writing the Coast. If you would like to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to visit our website. You'll find our gala video there, along with new videos possibly coming in the near future, and information about all of this year's winners and finalists. If you want to stay in the loop about all things BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Nancy Vo, whose book, The Ranger, is a finalist for the Christy Harris Illustrated Children's Literature Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.